but there's just so much you can talk about in, in, in this realm. Certainly, the, one of the tasks I've been given is to talk about the fact that the bill actually stifles innovation rather than enhances it. And certainly within my little humble subcommittee on energy and commerce, the subcommittee of oversight and investigation, subcommittee on health, we see this up close and personal almost a, a daily basis. And there is not a week that goes by that I do not hear from someone who has had or has a, a great idea for a new product, drug, device, and has spent a career trying to get it through the, the, the Byzantine tunnels at the Food and Drug Administration. And from my brief period of observation over the last eight years, it appears to be getting worse rather than better. And one of the things that happened with the passage of the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act is the new tax that has been placed on medical devices. And when you talk to people who are in that business of developing new devices, new technologies, their research and development budget is, uh, they work pretty close to the margin on almost everything they do. And adding this tax essentially obliterates their research and development budget. And it's one more push to, to, for these companies to, uh, and these innovators to go offshore and seek friendlier climbs in other countries. And this is an area where America has led the world. I mean, we tolerate some chaos in our medical system, and as a consequence, we have been a rich field for development of, of some of these new devices and techniques. And uh, it, it, it really is, from just the physician's perspective, when I, when I look at you know the young doctors coming into the field now, of course, we screwed up the policy side, so they're going to have to deal with that. But on the science side, I mean, it's really pretty impressive what, uh, what is happening. And as I tell young doctors, I mean, yeah, we, we've made it hard for you here in Washington, but your ability to alleviate human suffering is going to be something that's on a scale that no generation of doctors has ever had at their disposal before. So deal with the problems we've given you on the policy side. Fix those problems, but, but bear in mind that you're, uh, you're really coming into the golden age of medicine. Um, one of the things that I thought was most deleterious as far as innovation was the individual mandate. And one of the reasons I argue so strenuously against this bill as it came through the Congress was because, you know, with all due respect to our good friends in the insurance industry, hell, like I'm a doctor. What, you know, doctors fear the plaintiff's bar. We fight with hospital administrators, but we're constantly at war with third-party payers, right? Um, but I, we fostered a, a, a temporary a, a good relationship, and in fact, Aetna, who at one time I thought was trying to create a single-payer system in Texas in the 1990s, um, actually has provided a fairly good product that I am, their, their high-deductible health plan, I'm, I'm a subscriber to that. Uh, I have a health savings account. I think that is clearly the, the direction of the future if you're interested in saving money. And when I heard Ron Williams talk about that a few years ago, I, I will admit I was captivated by his discussion. I was captivated that here is a here is a financial guy that runs an insurance company who seems to know more about his patients than I did as a doctor by just capturing data that was available to him with financial reports. And why, why didn't that occur to me while I was in practice? So I was really impressed with the innovation I saw happening. Now that we've passed the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act and all these new rules and regulations are working their way through the Department of Health and Human Services with things like the medical loss ratio. You see the companies actually struggling with some of the innovations that they were already doing. Now, are they going to be able to, uh, to, to continue those in the future? 
right after the presidential election in 2008, I was uh, privileged to attend a roundtable where several of the people who were participating in the physician group practice demonstration project were talking one morning. And it was, this was, of course, a Mike Levitt proposal that he had uh, a, a pilot program that he had instituted when he was Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Bush administration. And really, these were, these were good ideas. And, and once again, I was struck by, I wonder why that never occurred to me while I was in practice to, to look at this in, in this way. Now, yesterday, just yesterday, in my office, is a group of some of these same people, some of the same large clinics that were at this round table and talking about the good things they were doing were in saying, heaven help us, we don't know what to do with these ACO regs. We can't do what we were doing two years ago because of what's coming to us out of Health and Human Services. So how are we furthering the cause of patient care when uh, we have a secretary who is, and a director of Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services who are convening these panels and don't talk to the people who are actually doing the work and making it happen, the people who are involved in the pilot projects. So enough on the good news there. Um, <laughs> Medicare and, and, you know, really this has been in so much in the headlines of what we've done to what Congress has done, what the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act has done to Medicare. I mean, you've all seen the headlines. We took $500 billion out of Medicare, credited ourselves with uh, saving that money for the trust fund for the future, but then spending that money on a new entitlement by subsidizing health insurance in the exchanges. And when you put pencil to paper, you realize that it can't work. And one of the biggest fantasies was the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act will save $142 billion over 10 years. Absolute nonsense. Richard Foster, the chief actuary of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, said, if you believe that we're going to get all the savings in Medicare that we've promised you over the years, that I've got good news for you about Medicare. Problem is, they, we never deliver on those promises. And as a consequence, we put the Medicare system under even greater strain going forward. And some of the innovative products that were already out there in the Medicare Advantage, true, there may have been some problems with, uh, with how those were arranged. But to take that money out of Medicare, by the subsidies in the exchange for the middle class in this country without fixing the fundamental problem in Medicare, in my opinion as a doctor, which is that we don't pay our doctors for delivering our Medicare to our Medicare patients, and you're not going to have anyone there to deliver the care. So what good is coverage without care? And that is the, the question that was never answered in the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. The fact that we didn't even create the space for a down payment in fixing the sustainable growth rate formula by taking, we took all this money out of Medicare uh, and, and didn't even get a down payment on that. Um, liability reform, what can I tell you there? I mean, Texas has some good news to share with the rest of the country. Caps work, and we did a 21st century version of the old Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act of 1975. Remember. Jerry, governor Jerry Brown of California. Oh, wait, he's governor again. Well, anyway, in 1975, he signed this bill. I mean, a, a Democratic governor in California signed a medical liability bill, and it, it worked in California. And many of us looked to the West to, uh, each evening and thought, why can't we have something sensible like that? Well, Texas did it in 2003. We passed a law that I like to argue is the 21st century iteration of that 1975 California law 
cap of $250,000 on a doctor in a medical liability suit, but we trifurcated the cap. There's also a cap on hospitals for $250,000 and a cap on a nursing home or a second hospital of $250,000, an aggregate cap of $750,000, not indexed for inflation, and here's the good news. It is working on the ground in Texas. So the president says we're going to do, we're going to put $25 million in the health care bill towards studying the problem of medical liability. For crying out loud, Mr. President, you don't need another study, you've got a whole state. The biggest and best, well, all right, the second biggest, <laughs> but still the best state in the union has actually done this. And the great news is it wasn't just a passing along the state legislature. That was then taken to the people of Texas and said, will you agree with a constitutional amendment so we don't have to go through all the court challenges, which is what happened to us in 1986. We did pass a Medical Liability Reform Act in 1986, and it got struck down in the courts, and life never changed. This time, in September of 2003, there was a referendum on this in the state of Texas. Doctors in their waiting rooms actually convinced enough people in the early voting period that this was a good thing as far as maintaining access to your physician. We got beaten on the air war in the two or three days before the election. I mean, how many times can you see that 18-wheeler running over that little girl on the freeway? I still see it in my dreams, but we won the ground game by a very small margin, and in fact, Texas doctors showed that you can, you can affect public policy because if you just talk to people about what's going on, for whatever reason, before we get elected, Dr. Hayworth, we are believable in our communities when, when we are functioning just as physicians. Once you get elected, you lose all of that luster, uh, which is a shame, which is, but it's, that's correct. Then one of the last things, uh, and since I guess I'm the most senior of the, of the three of, that are talking to you today, we have 10 things that are wrong with Obamacare, so I get four of the 10. Uh, the last one would be the, the oversight issue, and I don't know, I, it, I talked about this until I was blue in the face last year, in the months after the passage of the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, we didn't have one hearing on how this thing was being implemented. And it was startling to me because we had gone through what was called the stimulus bill the year before, had a lot of stuff with electronic health records in that, and then a year later get these rules delivered to us on meaningful use and multi-campus hospitals and all the other stuff, and holy cow, they're not workable. So we have to go back and now try to fix the problem, but they've already written the rules, they've already invested the time, and it becomes very, very difficult to move that battleship once it's set sail on the ocean. So I thought we could take a proactive look at these things as if, because there are multiple episodes of rulemaking written into the law. Um, you know the figures better than I, some almost uh, 2,000 times where it says the secretary shall. Each one of these leads to an episode of rulemaking, and if we wait for the rules to come down, then it just becomes more difficult to affect any change. So I thought we would have much more vigorous oversight after this law was enacted. There was a small little new federal agency that was created by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. It wasn't authorized in the bill, and I know that because I asked the director to come talk to me in my office last year, and he finally did after the election and saw that the winds were changing. And I asked him, I said, where in the world in this bill were you authorized? And he said, we weren't. The secretary thought she needed us, and this was the Office of Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight, OCHIO, or whatever the acronym spells. Um, they were setting up, uh, they had set up an office from June to 
November, they had hired some 200 people, rented spaces in Bethesda, and were just going great guns. This was the group that started to provide the waivers when people needed them in October. This was the group that was going to be in charge of the rules of setting up the exchanges. This was the group that was dealing with the medical loss ratio, an enormous amount of power, and not one single line of authorization in a 2,700-page bill. What's going on with that? So. I was really starting to push on that. They pulled that agency back down the day Speaker Boehner was sworn in and brought it back into the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and now it's called the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight, CHICHAO, which is an even more endearing acronym. And they continue to do all of those things that they were doing before. Now, we've had two oversight hearings with them in committee now. Uh, but again, a lot of this stuff is now water under the bridge. The waivers are already established administration policy. And there's a lot of question mark. Who gets waivers? Who doesn't? Who's denied? If you're denied, how do you, how do you apply again? I mean, I have people come up to my town hall and say, Dr. Burgess, I need one of those waivers for my small business. And I say, yeah, we'll go apply to the waivers are, because I don't know who that is. But this has been an enormous problem, and the lack of attention uh, during the first nine months after the passage of the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, has set the stage for what are going to be a lot more confounding and confusing problems going forward. Um, the fact that we didn't get the chief actuary's report before we voted on this thing in March of 2010 was was really one of the what what a, a significant failing because we were given information by the Congressional Budget Office, saves $142 billion over 10 years. You get Richard Foster's report. Oh, I forgot to tell you, it actually costs $342 billion over 10 years. And there's a $450 billion swing, which even in Washington, we're talking about some real cash. I've been uh, practicing medicine in the Upper Peninsula for the last uh, 30 years. And uh, what actually got me in the race was the stimulus bill. You know, they spent a trillion dollars of money we didn't have on something they didn't read. And I said to myself, I just can't sit here and take it anymore. So I ran for Congress. Um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Obamacare. I just call it Obamacare. And uh, to me, it's a disaster that's going to destroy medicine in this country. It's nothing less than that. It's going to limit our access to care. It's going to limit our access to specialists. It's going to limit our access to hospitals. It's going to destroy medicine in this country. Um, well, I, they give them just a little list of 10 reasons. But that is the biggest reason I just said. It's, it's not paid for. It's, it doesn't. It adds a whole other layer of government bureaucracy on this failed system. Well, it's not, you know, the system we have is excellent, but it could be better. And a whole other central planning committee on top of that system does not make it better. I mean, central planning worked so well for the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, it's not going to make our medicine better. Uh, one of the incident, one of the things here I'm supposed to talk about is the Independent Payment Advisory Board, uh, a commission appointed by the president that's going to decide uh, how much to pay doctors and what to pay them for, what procedures they're going to allow to do, what treatments they're going to be able to pick to, for a certain diagnosis code. So bureaucrats deciding how I should take care of your grandmother. 
from Washington. You know, it's like every grandmother is the same. Um, physicians are incensed about this, and patients should be incensed about this. Uh, America should be incensed about this. Um, it's not the reason I ran for Congress, but because I didn't know what was in the bill when it passed. I mean, nobody did. It's only a year later that we're finding out implications. I mean, even last in the last month, we just found out about this hundred million dollar appropriation in there. I didn't. Nobody knew that was there before. Apparently, a month ago. I mean, I guess it's in there, but who's read the whole damn thing? <laughs> well, I, actually, I have read everything that I voted on since I've been here, and some of it has been, the budget was 459 pages, uh, or, or the, uh, the CR was 459 pages, the budget was only 68. So I have actually been reading everything I voted on, um, but sometimes there's a few late nights. Uh, the other, the, the last thing I'm supposed to talk about is the, uh, is the statement that Mr. Obama made that if you like what you have, you can keep it as far as your insurance is concerned. And uh, we've already seen that uh, it's not really the case. It's a lot of the bigger companies have figured out that it's going to be cheaper for them to just simply pay a penalty and put people into the exchanges. So that doesn't make much sense. And then... Uh, there's a lot of people that are going to lose their coverage for this reason. So that's, you're not going to be able to keep your, your coverage as it was promised. Uh, so those are the three things I was supposed to talk about. I mean, health care reform, in my opinion, is that health care reform in this country needs to be focused on the patient and the physician. The patient needs to be the center of health of care. They should be the person who provides the, the choice as to how to spend their dollar. And that has to be incentivized uh, through the health through a health savings account and uh, and uh, you know high deductible insurance. I, I, I see as the only way of, of dealing with this because <clears throat> and we have to develop a more free market in that system. I mean, doctors should be advertising what they charge. Patients should be shopping for the best doctor just like they do for a plumber by by quality service, availability, and price. And only when we get a true market free market factors into that equation are we going to get what the true cost of medicine is. Some third party designating what the price is going to be. That never works. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. It's not going to work in Obamacare. We need to make the free market the source of, the comp of competition and, you know, get the price to where it should be. Well, I could go on for a long time, but so. Health care is the most emotionally laden issue we have in our uh, portfolio of, uh, of action that we need to take. Uh, and I think the reason is because uh, it is seen by many Americans as a right. And if you define health care as a right, and you assign the state the responsibility to assure that that right is protected or is honored, 
then there's an entire cascade of consequences that result in laws like the Affordable Care Act. So how do we frame this debate so that what we believe passionately is best for Americans? We're not here, uh, and uh, we have, uh, and I want to thank all the friends and mentors I see here from, from uh, who are doing their, their utmost within this this sector, the healthcare industry, in so many ways. Um, and I want to thank the members of the Ripon Society as well for uh, preserving freedom, because that's really what it's about. We want to frame this debate in terms of what is fundamentally American. What does it mean to be American? Why is it important uh, to have a, a different law than the Affordable Care Act? We honor the goals. When I ran in, uh, the Hudson Valley, and I think Sue Kelly, I don't know if uh, Representative Kelly is here. She was here. I uh, am uh, a, a, her successor uh, as a Republican woman representing the Hudson Valley. Uh, but I, I, too, I never referred to the law as Obamacare because I didn't want to cut off the discussion uh, right away. So I always referred to it as the Affordable Care Act and said, we honor the goals, and we do. Who doesn't want to see every American have good affordable care, health care, access to that kind of health care, to have the blessings of the innovation that Mike was talking about and the doctor-patient relationship that Dan was, was talking about that are uh, what we cherish so much? Who doesn't want to see every American have that and have affordable, portable health insurance? We all do. But the means by which the Affordable Care Act does that, 2008 meant we've got to change the paradigm. Uh, 2010 meant we don't like what you're headed for here. Uh, and, and the idea to me is that this all matters if you care about freedom, if you care about choice and control, if you care about patients and their providers, their caregivers being in charge. Uh, so the, the problem with the Affordable Care Act is that it takes power away from us, the citizens. Uh, it, it absolutely changes the model. Uh, and I know you know that, but I'm just giving you a, a sense of what I think we need to do in the way I've sold, if you will, our position across a district that has a registration that's quite mixed. We're a third, a third, a third. Third Democrats, actually slight preponderance of Democrats, third Republicans, and a third unaffiliated. Uh, so it's, it's kind of that classic swing district. Uh, and, and the way you do it is by saying, I want everybody to have great things, but I don't want you to miss what is best about American medicine. And the problem with the ACA is that we have the most vigorous consumer culture in the world. That's why we have such a, such a, a powerful nation, because when people have the incentive to link work and reward and do great things with the fruits of their labor for their families and their communities and their colleagues and the people they care about. You know, that's what, that's the engine, that, that's the energy that grows an economy. So we have an incredible consumer society and we want the best and we want it yesterday. That's the American way. Well, we've had that in medicine too. We want that in medicine. And up until now, a third party has been paying the bill for most of us. Uh, it, we, we have various ways of arranging it, but essentially that's, that's, the, that's the problem. When you start layering an entitlement system, uh, you know, we're up against the crisis of demographics and arithmetic with Medicare uh, creating that, that bulge in the system. That is the, the overwhelming piece of our budget that's going to engulf us. That's, that's the big monster uh, in the room. So when you layer an entitlement system atop a consumer society, that's why we're not Britain, France, Scandinavia, you name it. That's why those models won't work. And they were the models for the Affordable Care Act. Well, it works in Britain. Yeah, well, it won't work here. It won't work here because the British are actually willing to sit patiently in line 
uh, for, yeah, my, my mother's English. So, you know, she, she came a perfectly civilized country, delightful to visit. Uh, but in 1948, <laughs> I like going there, uh, you know, and, and, and I love my mother's accent. You know, I, I, I said, God, she must listen to me and go, oh, ah, but, mm, you know, so. It's what happens when you marry an American. Uh, but, uh, but no, my mother, you know, my mother was, uh, in 1948, she was working in the dental clinic in the University of Manchester. And uh, the British are known for their bad teeth. And I just had a British friend come up to me the other day and say, you know, I have good teeth. Well, yes, you do, but, uh, but I'm sorry there is an exception there, but uh, I'm sorry I missed that, but, but, you know, but my mother had struggled with her bad teeth for years, and my mother grew up with nothing. It was almost a Dickensian story, but they were always conservative because they believed in taking responsibility in the dignity of having responsibility for yourself, of having that autonomy. It comes with risk, but it comes with reward, and it comes with that sense that I am the master of my own fate. Uh, and that's quintessentially American, uh, as we all know. But uh, she, she watched after nationalized health care, she'd been in the British Army for four years, real patriot, but she watched as nationalized health care came in in Britain. And the dental clinic filled with people, with fellow citizens, all with lousy teeth, of course, who would have been perfectly content to live with their god-awful dentition had not the state stepped in and said, hey, guess what? Someone else is going to be paying for this. Come on in. Uh, and all of a sudden, responsibility and reward had been decoupled. And she said, that's it. I'm leaving. And she came to the United States. Uh, so but the reason that we oppose the ACA is not because we oppose the goals. Uh, or, and of course, the specifics. And there are three depredations of the ACA that, that I, I am obligated to mention that, that with which you'll be familiar. One is that it's a terrible thing for businesses. You know that our small businesses are already being badly affected by this law. I can tell you stories from our district, and I'm sure I know Mike and Dan can, uh, but there basically is, uh, unfortunately, the immediate impact has been that their insurance premiums have shot up. Oh, why? Well, because, of course, insurers have to cover the risk they've been asked to take on with uh, community rating uh, and with guaranteed issue uh, becoming the law of the land. And th those who wrote this law said, well, you know, we'll just make people do stuff. Yeah, <laughs> somebody's going to cover it somewhere. No, they won't. And our small businesses are already suffering for that. And of course, what's going to happen, obviously, is that everybody's going to be forced into the exchanges because it doesn't make sense for business of any size to cover expensive insurance when they can simply pay a penalty that is far less than the cost of the premium in most cases. And that'll be the end of our private insurance industry. And that is a shame. And I am determined not to let that happen. We need choice and control. We need our autonomy. We need choice and control. Uh, Medicaid for the states, of course, this is another huge problem on so many levels, but uh, I think the block grant idea makes the most sense as an interim measure. Uh, the ACA it, it simply forces more responsibilities on the states, forces eligibility changes that may indeed not fit in at all with what a state has in mind for. Uh, its own population. Mitch Daniels, Healthy Indiana, I think, Mike, you mentioned uh, you mentioned HSAs. Uh, I think Dan did, too. That's, that is clearly the model uh, with which to go. And in the state of Indiana, Healthy Indiana funds HSAs for its Medicaid patients. And that was a Republican governor in a Democratic legislature. That was a nonpartisan effort, and it works in Indiana. And Mitch Daniels has said he may not be able to afford to continue that program under the Affordable Care Act. What a shame, and how stupid is that, and that's just another example of how bad and dumb this law is. 
Um, and, and finally, of course, this, this avalanche of regulations with no accountability that are already being promulgated uh, by CMS and HS, HHS. Not on schedule, by the way, because there's so much to do uh, that they can't possibly keep up, which uh, is a you know is a blessing, but also uh, a problem because there is there is stasis in our business environment because between the Affordable Care Act and Dodd Frank, and I actually sit on financial services, so Dodd Frank is now my life. Uh, between that, we just we have kind of a, a, an economy that's in suspended animation. Uh, and ultimately, it is, it is a job loser. Capital's already moving out of the United States. So when we sell our idea of a new paradigm that frees Americans to have the choice and control that they want, that they, that they do feel they're accustomed to, uh, but frees them to do it in a way that's responsible. So when we control cost, which we have to do, we allow them as consumers to work with their doctors and with their providers to determine what is best. That means we have to have a rational pricing structure. We're all going to have to work together on that because right now, as you know, there is so much cost shifting that has gone on in the status quo ante. Uh, that nobody can keep track of the rack rate. At least that's been the case in my experience in suburban New York. Uh, so when we, when we try to uh, persuade our fellow Americans that it is better for them to go with our concept of healthcare as something that's a consumer opportunity, a consumer choice, a consumer responsibility, one way uh, to promote it is that it will create jobs because we won't be sending that money to Washington to create regulations. We won't be trying to force their states and their communities to do things that don't make sense. Uh, and this is something that will directly affect their lives. And it, the, the, the public is with us right now because thus far what they've seen of the Affordable Care Act, they don't like. Uh, so I think it's going to be incumbent on all of us, Mike, Dan, and I, of course, most immediately, if you will, but on each of us here to be advocates and sellers and marketers, if you will, of that point of view. We have to sell that message uh, that the Affordable Care Act is bad, but we have better ideas, and here they are. We are going to help you have the control and the power for yourself and for your loved ones uh, that, that, that you want and you need. But we have to do it by uh, making sure that we're getting that positive message out among colleagues and in our communities. And I want to thank you for helping us do that uh, with all that you do uh, to uh, support our message and support our efforts. And uh, I'm honored to work side by side with you. We're over at 1440 Longworth, and we're always happy to have company. We do have a lot of candy in the office. So, <laughs> so it's an inducement, so come on by. And thank you so much for your attention this morning.